We're going to be back in Luke chapter 9 today, verses 28 through 36. And as we, as we step back in, we've, we've been away from Luke chapter 9 for a, for a bit, so we need to kind of step back in and um, get, get reacquainted uh, because of the time we've taken off from, from the, our study in Luke. Um, but let me encourage you to do this. So, so on, on the Version Live event, I tell you this every week, I, again, let me just encourage you to go and look. There's, there's Bible verses that are going to be on the screen. You'll be able to read them, but, but the, 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 the verses are there. The, there's quotes and there's some, some references there that I want you to have to be able to continue to study and let this passage, I mean, this is an amazing passage. As I studied this, I've studied it now for about six weeks because I didn't preach it the first time I thought I was going to preach it. And so I've been reading over and over this passage. And it, it was tough to get this whittled down to fit into one, one message. But, but there is so much here. It is so rich. Luke chapter 9 gives us a, gives us a, 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 a transition, if you will. There, there's a, there's everything to that point, Jesus is out doing the work. Jesus is out healing. Jesus is out teaching. Jesus is the one that's expressing power and authority. And in Luke chapter 9, there's this transition that happens where Jesus kind of, in this formative moment where Jesus enlists his closest followers to, to work along with him. Again, before this, this, it was Jesus doing the work. Here he says, now you apostles, now you go. You go and you teach and you exercise power and you cast out demons and you heal the sick. Then he says when they come back and they're all excited about what's going on and they're surrounded by these crowds, he says, you give them something to eat. You serve their need. And then as they're thinking about who he is, the Christ, and he tells them that he's going to die, that he says that they are to pick up a cross and follow him. See, he calls them to go, he calls them to serve, and he calls them to suffer. That's the sent life that we've been studying. That's the perspective that we've been gaining in Luke chapter 9. But there's another component there's another component here, and in my opinion, it's the greatest and most satisfying of all the components, because if you, if you want to know the truth, I don't get up in the morning and just get excited about having to suffer for the name of Christ. It's not like that's the thing that's on the, just wetting my whistle and just, I want to talk about suffering. Serving is difficult. It costs something to give of ourselves. And going is sometimes scary, Intimidating. But there's this, this component that I think brings satisfaction in all of them. And it is his glory. They often when we focus on this sent life, often when we think about what we've been called to do, we think about the responsibility, the weight, the difficulty that comes. And I don't want to say that we don't have a job to do. Yes, we have a job to do. Yes, we have a cross to carry. But Jesus didn't call us simply because he needed us to do a task. He didn't send us just because he couldn't accomplish it on his own. Christian, it is in the going the serving and the suffering for Jesus' fame, that we most fully experience Jesus' glory. This, this component of the sent life 
It's what brings us the greatest satisfaction, the, the, the hunger that our souls desire. That it, it feeds the hunger that our souls desire. And we find it here in Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. We begin reading in verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, that's eight days after Jesus had told them that he was going to die and be resurrected. Eight days after he said, you're going to have to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. Eight days later, he took with him Peter and John and James and he went up to the mountain to pray. <clears throat> and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men appeared in glory and spoke or I'm sorry, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they had become fully awake, they saw his glory, and they saw the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. Peter's really good at speaking in ignorance. Like he's often seen as speaking before he understands what he's saying. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. They're the innermost circle of his apostles. He had these three, he had the 12, and then there were the masses. And we see Peter, James, and John with him at different events in which they, they experienced him uh, a little more closely, a little more intimately. It wasn't that they were better than or more worthy. He had just chosen those three for his purpose. And he brings them in close. And in this moment, he leads them to the top of a high mountain. We don't know what mountain it was. There's a lot of people who speculate. I don't think that does us any good, so we're not going to. But once they arrive, Peter, James, and John are overwhelmed by sleep. They are exhausted. And a lot of people will tell you, oh, it's terrible. The disciples are always falling asleep. And they were, I mean, they were, this, this was a busy days. They were surrounded by people. The ministry, the work of God's ministry is tiring. We would be falling asleep too. In fact, it's kind of funny to me that, that just a few passages earlier, the, the commentators are all understanding of Jesus as he falls asleep in the boat. In John chapter, or Luke chapter 8, Jesus falls asleep in the boat, and they're like, oh, he's exhausted because of the weight of ministry, the work that he's doing, he's exhausted. And they're all understanding about that. But when they come to the disciples, they don't understand it. And they get on, they, they get on this kick about all oh, this terrible that they're falling asleep. We'd all be falling asleep. We're no better. They're, they're, they are tired. They have been surrounded by people for weeks. Jesus has been being pressed in on by crowds, and they have been with him being pressed in on by crowds. Withdrawing like this was the only silence they got, the only break, they, the, the only relief from the press of the crowds that they felt. And so they get to the top of this mountain. Again, after exhausting days of work, they climb to the top of a high mountain. I'm just, I, I've climbed to the top of a high mountain. 
I would have laid down and gone to sleep before I got there. Just saying. But while they're slipping into their slumber, Jesus is praying. And something happens as he prays. Something astonishing happens as he prays. Luke tells us that his face is altered, that it's changed, and his clothes begin glowing white. Mark, in his account, says that Jesus was transfigured before them and that his clothes began to, to be more white or became more white than any bleach could make them. Matthew says that Jesus' face shone like the sun and his, clay, his, his clothes became white as Light. What they're trying to, to describe in their finite terms is the infinite glory of God shining through the veil of this human form. And this light that they saw wasn't a reflection off of Jesus. It wasn't, it wasn't something outside of him being bestowed upon him. It was coming from within him. I imagine it. I picture it in my mind as if it's lightning. You know, the lightning as it flashes in a dark sky. It's bright white. But the difference would be that lightning would disappear just as quickly as it shines. But this lightning would endure. This lightning would burn in the retinas and just shine there and, and, bring, and, and chase back all the darkness and it would ruin your night vision. And I mean, you would be in the midst of day because of it. When the three apostles were fully awoken, they saw this glory. They were astonished. They were in awe. And they saw standing there with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. I don't know how they knew it was Moses and Elijah. Nobody really knows how they knew it was Moses and Elijah. But Moses and Elijah were there, and they recognized them. And Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus. And as they begin to go away, Peter, being Peter, speaks up. He, he's, he, he doesn't know what he's saying, but he, he knows this is a moment to be cherished. This is a moment that I don't want to end. I can only imagine that we would be in the same place if we had stood on this mountaintop. But as astonishing as the glory of Jesus shining through this human form, as, as, as astonishing, as amazing as seeing Moses and Elijah standing there speaking to him was this moment where the cloud covered them and they heard God speak. This is my son. This moment is a moment drenched and dripping with glory. The glory of God is, 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 just, is, is being expunged out of it. I mean, it can't, it can't hold it in any longer. The glory of God is overflowing in this moment. And, and, and more than anything, brothers and sisters, as we consider this sent life, this life that we've been called into, I don't want you to leave here thinking about the job that has to be done. I don't want you to leave here today thinking about the responsibility of the life that we've been caught, sent into. I want you to see that it's in following Jesus Christ that these men experienced his glory. 
That they saw something we all long to see. Their souls were satisfied. The, the, the hunger for glory that we all feel was satiated. It, it, was, it was fed. This moment, drenched and dripping with glory. And so let's just sit here and, and dwell in the glory. Jesus' intrinsic glory. Again, it wasn't light shining on Jesus. This wasn't glory being bestowed upon him. This is his glory being revealed in the world. As John would later write his gospel, he wrote these words. John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. John was an eyewitness. John had seen it firsthand. He didn't have to hear about it from someone else. He didn't have to be told about it. by say he, he, he saw it. I saw his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul, Paul had been knocked off a horse and blinded by this glory. And he writes in Colossians 1:19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And in this moment, the veil was pulled back and the fullness of God was pleased to shine through. It's this glory that made Moses' face radiant on Mount Sinai as God renewed his covenant with the people of Israel. If you'll remember, if you think back, or if you're not familiar with the story, uh, Moses had, had come down from the mountain. He had carried the two tablets down. He comes down from the mountain, and the, and the Israelites had gotten tired of waiting on him for 40 days because that's how patient they were. He comes down from the mountain, and they got tired of waiting on him, and they're worshiping a golden calf. And he throws the tablets down and breaks them. And in the renewal of the covenant later, Moses is on the mountain again. And he is speaking with God. And when he came down, this is what it says, Exodus 34, 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. The radiance of God's glory was reflected in the radiance of, 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 of Moses' face. And it freaked people out. It scared them. And he would wear a veil when he spoke to them. But when he'd go in and he'd speak to God, he would, he would take the veil off. But then when he'd come back out, he would put the veil back on. And it's this same glory now that as Moses stands there, it says that he and Elijah had appeared in glory. This is not their glory. This is a glory radiating off of them. It's a glory bestowed upon them by God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is emanating light. He is emanating glory and is radiating off of, of Moses and Elijah even in this moment. Brothers and sisters, this intrinsic glory is the same glory that will one day light the new Jerusalem. That day when all tears will be wiped away, death is no more. And the new city of Jerusalem has come down and God has made all things new. Revelation 21, 23, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. Jesus Christ is glorious. He is worthy to be worshipped. He is worthy to be praised. 
the heavens. They might declare his, the glory of God and the sky might proclaim his handiwork as David wrote in Psalm 19. Day to day they may pour forth speech and night after night they may reveal knowledge. But if not for Christ coming and revealing the glory of God, there would be preaching a message and singing a song that we could not understand. They would be revealing a truth that we would long for but never know. But in Jesus Christ, the intrinsic glory of God is able to be experienced by you and by me. Jesus is glorious. And not only do we see Jesus' glory in this moment on the mountaintop, as we dwell in his glory, let's look further, because in his glorious moment, in this glory-drenched moment, we see Jesus' glorious kingdom. This was the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus had just made. Eight days earlier, six, depending on how you count it, Matthew and Mark both say six days later. Luke says eight. It's got to do with the way they counted days. But Jesus had just said, Luke chapter 9, verse 27, he says, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. The most, <laughs> you have a couple of things you can do with this. Either there's people still alive waiting for the kingdom of God to come down, and some people actually think that John's still walking on the face of the earth. To me, that's a little bit ludicrous. It's not impossible because God's pretty big. But immediately, eight days later, they're on this mountain and these men see the kingdom. He knew it was coming. He knew that his glory and the glory of his kingdom would be revealed. He wasn't just coming to shine a light for just a minute. It's part of a much larger plan. Jesus' glory was being made known because he was coming to establish his glorious kingdom. And we know that they saw it this way. We know that they perceived his kingdom based on what happens when they left the mountain. Luke doesn't tell us, but in Matthew and Mark's account, they're leaving the mountain the next day. They're walking down the mountain, and as they're walking down the mountain, they're wondering, what does Jesus mean about his resurrection? And hey, by the way, Jesus, why is it that the scribes are telling us Elijah must come back? They're asking an eschatological, they're asking an end of times question. They're asking a kingdom question. They saw in the glory of Jesus Christ the glory of his kingdom. And they wondered... Why did the scribes say that Elijah had to come back if what we just saw was what we just saw? And see, we see Jesus' glory. We see Jesus' glorious kingdom. And brothers and sisters, we get a glimpse. We get an explanation. We get a picture of Jesus' glorious mission. You see, it's significant that it's Moses and Elijah that are standing there on that mountain that appeared with Jesus. It is, it, is, it is no coincidence that they stood talking about Jesus' departure. It's no coincidence that they had a conversation. This is not some insignificant little, little, little snippet. They weren't hanging out with Jesus and talking about, hey, we've missed you since you've been gone. They're not talking to him about, hey, can we get together and hang out when you get back on the block? Each of these, the, the conversation, the, the people that appeared with him, each of these highlight what Jesus had come to do and how it was that he was going to establish this glorious kingdom. 
Let me just show you three. There's so many threads that we could pull on here. He fulfills the law and the prophets. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. If you, if you know a little bit about the Old Testament and the way that the Hebrews considered it, they considered the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, they spoke of it in terms of the law and the prophets. When Jesus talked about the greatest commandment, that it, was summed up, uh, that it summed up the whole law and prophets, it was, it, he was referring to the Old Testament. Jesus fulfills both the law and the prophets. He did what the law couldn't do. Romans 8.3 says that for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. The law has limits. The law offered by God, given by God, has limitations. He, he did what the law could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. And Spurgeon commenting on this passage from Romans chapter 8 says this, We know that the law is good if a man uses it lawfully. But there are many things which the law cannot do. It cannot produce a new heart in a sinner. It cannot save a lost soul. It cannot justify a guilty person. It cannot draw a wanderer back to God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus did what the law couldn't do. It gave us a spirit. He gave us a spirit. Not of fear, but of sonship. And by it we cry, Abba, Father. He changed our hearts. He made us new. He didn't just give us a command to follow, but he gave us a desire to follow it. He didn't simply say, you're condemned because you can't live up. He did for us what we couldn't do. He did what the law couldn't do, and he did what we couldn't do under the law. He obeyed it perfectly. He never sinned. You can see this point made uh, several times across the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5.21 if you're taking notes, 2 Corinthians 5.21, 1 Peter 2.22, and also 1 John 3.5. John writes, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Jesus never broke a command. He lived under the law perfectly. He did what none of us could do. If we just took an inventory of ten of the commandments, ten commandments out of the whole law, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, or I'm sorry, that's a, the greatest commandment, sorry. You shall have no other gods before me. There's not a person in this room that doesn't have some heart idol that chases devotion, of, or that chases the devotion of some heart idol. You shall honor your father and mother. Maybe you've not been disrespectful to your parents but probably there's somebody in this room that has. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. You see, and you think, oh, well, I never cheated on my wife. I never murdered anyone. But Jesus says if you've hated your brother, you've murdered him. And Jesus says that if you've lusted after another woman in your heart, you have committed adultery already. The commands condemn us. But the commands... The law of God affirms Jesus Christ because he lived perfectly, never sinning, never breaking any command, neither in, in, uh, in spirit or in any other form. He was perfect. He was sinless. So 
he fulfills the law and the prophets by doing what the law couldn't do. By doing what we couldn't do under the law. And he fulfills the promises of the prophets. He's the one the prophets had been promising. He's the one that had been being promised from the very moment that God put the curse on on man and, 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 and the earth fell under the curse of sin because of our rebellion. He promises one to come to crush the head of the serpent. The prophets have been promising over and over and over through the Old Testament. Isaiah promising a, a coming Savior, a suffering Savior, a, a King. David's throne would be taken and, and, and ruled from eternally. And in Deuteronomy, one of my favorites, and I think extremely, especially pertinent to this passage, Moses himself prophesies, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. That's Deuteronomy 18, 15. See, they had been looking for a prophet and the whole time that everybody was asking who Jesus was, they kept talking about him being the prophet. This is the moment that so many thought that had had arrived, but they couldn't fully comprehend what was going on. But it is to him, he says, you shall listen. He fulfills, Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. This is the mission he came to accomplish. But it it doesn't stop with fulfilling the law and the prophets. He establishes a new covenant. God had made a covenant with Israel. We spoke about that just a minute ago. And even in the beginning days, when when all was was seemingly right and good, they they couldn't even wait for Moses to come down. But God says to Moses, Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 6, God says to Moses, Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel on the Mount Sinai when Moses was with God before he had even come down and seen the golden calf, before he had broken any tablets. Moses was sitting in the presence of God and entering into a covenant agreement with him on behalf of the people of Israel. And you know how that goes. A stiff-necked people, a, a rebellious people. But God has been faithful to his chosen people, to the remnant. And he establishes his new covenant on this mountain through Jesus. And, and even if they didn't catch it then, even if in that moment they didn't fully comprehend it, they certainly would understand it later. And it would motivate Peter to write these words to the churches scattered, not just Jewish people, churches scattered across Asia Minor, what we now know as Turkey, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You know, we've referred to these words lately talking about the, the fact that God has drawn a people for himself out from among the peoples of the world. Brothers and sisters, this is covenant language. The covenant that has been established by the life and blood and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own 
possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. He, he uh, establishes a new covenant and he accomplishes a greater exodus. They're speaking with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah as, as, as the, the three apostles are looking on in, in just dazed amazement. They hear Jesus speaking to, to, to Moses and Elijah about his departure. Something significant about that conversation. Because the word departure is the same word. What it, what it is is his exodus. It's the same word used to, to speak of Moses and his exodus. Jesus is going to do what Moses and Elijah couldn't. See, Moses delivered God's people from slavery and oppression in the flesh. Elijah delivered God's people from idol worship in the flesh. But Jesus would deliver us, God's people, from death and eternal condemnation and bring us into life. Colossians 1, 13, 14 says he has delivered us. It's the other side of Exodus. He took us out of. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, brothers and sisters, this glorious mission that Jesus has come to accomplish is to establish his kingdom. And by establishing his kingdom, he's done a work. In order to establish his kingdom, he's done a work that, that lives sinlessly that completes what everything has been prepared. What, what, what was done by him is to fulfill all the promises made by God. And in so doing, he establishes this new covenant with his people and he, he prepares for an exodus so that you and I no longer have to be the people of Adam, but we can now be the, the line of Christ that he's the firstborn among many brothers, that you and I now have an inheritance that was waiting for us in heaven that will neither stain nor tarnish or fade. That brothers and sisters, we no longer are, 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 are in the line of Adam, diseased by death and enslaved to sin, but in Christ we have been given life and made free. This is the glorious mission of Christ that he came to accomplish, to establish his glorious kingdom that we might live in the presence of his intrinsic glory. And brothers and sisters, we can't look at this passage without seeing and hearing of Jesus' glorious identity. The one thing that makes this all possible, that makes his glory truly intrinsic, who is this man who commands the wind and waves? Who is this that forgives sin? Who is this that exercises power and teaches with such authority? These are the questions that people had been asking. We've heard them all the way through the, the study of Luke. And even most recently, who is this that, that gives power and authority to use on his behalf? This is essentially the question that Herod was asking. Jesus had sent the apostles out. He said, go and teach about the kingdom. I'm giving you power and authority. And they go, and when they come back, they're excited about all the things that they had done. But Luke tells us that while they were out, Herod began asking. Herod, the political powers that be in that region, Herod begins asking, Who is this Jesus? 
And later, in response to continue to demonstrate who he was, Jesus would command his disciples to serve alongside him as he fed the multitude. They wouldn't do it by their own power, but as a result of his power, they would feed a multitude, 5,000 men, no telling how many women and children with five loaves and two fish. And as they sat and spoke about what had happened, Jesus would ask the question, who do they say that I am? And the crowds could only guess, the the peoples could only fathom a guess. And as close as they could get, as close as the, the thought could come that there was something supernatural about Jesus, that there was something special about Jesus, that there was something about Jesus that was, he, he had been sent as a prophet, they could only guess. And in this moment, he asked that question, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaking, I believe speaking on behalf of the twelve, says, you are the Christ. And see, this moment, we see how they're stepping in, how they're walking close, how they're living in intimacy with Christ. Had it availed them to see a greater glory. But nothing they had seen, nothing they had heard, nothing they had understood or experienced to this point could prepare them for the glory that awaited that night on the mountaintop. Peter, seeking to do what he could do to make this moment last, not understanding what he's doing, says, hey, I want to I make a tent, I want to make a shelter for you and for Moses and Elijah. And un, unbeknownst to him, un, un, without understanding, what he's doing is he's trying to bring Jesus down and bring them up to the same level. And while Jesus may fill the role as a prophet, a priest, and a king, he is no mere prophet, priest, and king. But what Peter tried to do, God put to a stop. He covers the mountain in cloud, and he speaks out loud for them to hear, This is my son, my chosen one. You see, this shows us that Jesus is no mere man. He's no mere prophet. He's no mere, mere, mere priest. He is no mere king. Jesus is the God in flesh. Jesus is God the Father's glorious Son who's come to establish His glorious kingdom, who's come to, to complete His glorious mission because of His glorious identity. Brothers and sisters, with this glory-drenched moment fresh in our minds, let's just stop and imagine. Imagine if James and Peter and Andrew and John had been standing by that sea the day that Jesus had caught so many fish on their behalf, so many fish that their nets were breaking and their boats were sinking. And when they get back to the bank and Jesus says, hey, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Imagine what they might have missed out on had they said, you know, Jesus, we're pretty satisfied with this amazing catch of fish. Imagine had these apostles been, been, been standing there and hearing Jesus say, go, use my power, heal people, Cast out demons, teach with authority. 
And imagine they said, you know, we've got enough of you, Jesus. We've got other priorities right now. We've got other things to do right now. Imagine if Jesus had called the winds to stop and the seas to quit raging. And when the apostles got out of the boat, they, 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 they didn't follow Jesus back to the other side. We can fish from right here, Jesus. Imagine, on that night, when Peter, James, and John were already so tired, and Jesus said, come, come to me with the top of this, to the top of this mountain. Imagine the glory they would have missed had they not followed him there. We're too tired, Jesus. I need to rest, Jesus. For so many of us today, our Christian lives are, la our Christian lives are lackluster. We hear stories of amazing things happen and we wonder why that doesn't happen to me. Our Christian lives are not all they can be. They are not full of joy and experiencing of glory. But it's not because Jesus has failed to be glorious. But because we have been chasing the wrong glory. You see, if Peter, Peter, James, and John hadn't gone to the top of that mountain, it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have kept the transfiguration from happening. Jesus wouldn't have quit being glorious. It's just we would have read the transfiguration with Tom, Dick, and Harry instead of Peter, James, and John. The priorities we give ourselves to, they may appear to be noble. <laughs> there are many things that we can cover up with religious speak and religious service. They may appear to have the characteristics of this sent life that we have been called to. But all the while, we are replacing a pursuit of Jesus' fame with a pursuit of something much less glorious. Instead of advancing his kingdom, we seek to build our own. Oh, we'll go, we'll go, we'll go to some mission, giving our lives to some purpose, but that doesn't mean it will be Jesus' mission. We'll serve, we'll serve someone, but that doesn't mean that we're going to serve Jesus or serve with Jesus. We'll suffer. There's not a person in this world, Christian and non-Christian alike, who doesn't suffer. But that does not mean that we'll suffer for Jesus' sake. All suffering is not picking up a cross and following Jesus. Now listen, we all have an innate desire for this, this to experience God's glory in Christ. We all have this innate desire for glory. And that's why we do these things. That's why we serve. That's why we go. That's why we suffer. So often we're doing it for some lesser glory. J.R. Vassar wrote a book. He called it Glory Hunger. And he speaks of this desire, this innate desire within each of us as glory hunger. A hunger, that, a hunger for glory, whether in us or around us, but it's always misappropriated by us. 
He writes this. He says, glory, hunger. We all have it. It begins as kids. We want to stand out and feel significant. And we are terrified by the prospect of obscurity. We imagine heroic feats like winning the race, scoring the winning touchdown, or taking one deep in the bottom of the ninth with bases loaded and down by three runs. Full count, of course. No one ever dreams of giving up the homer, just of hitting it. Others grow up dreaming of taking the stage. Starring in the lead role or winning American Idol, little girls see themselves in every Disney flick and imagine one day being prized and swept off their feet by a handsome prince. Maybe that doesn't describe you at all. You may never imagine yourself winning the race or securing the victory for your team or attracting the attention of a cheering crowd. You may be a shy wallflower who hates the spotlight and shrinks from the attention But that does not mean you are not hungry for glory. You may be just as glory hungry as the Olympic athlete. For you, perhaps the pursuit of glory is less about achieving exploits and more about avoiding embarrassment. Maybe for you, seizing glory means sidestepping humiliation. You don't care about winning the race and taking the podium. You just don't want to trip and come in last. The applause of the crowd is not the prize for you. The prize is avoiding the jeers. A passion for praise or a fear of humiliation, it's all glory hunger. As we grow out of our childhood dreams, our glory hunger only intensifies and moves into mature domains. Social status, academic exploits, career advancement, wealth, marriage, and family. These all become means of making it. And making it is an effort to satiate our glory, hunger. I don't want you to misunderstand. We are not all going to see Jesus stand before us and become like light in this life. So many of us have given ourselves to the pursuit of some smaller glory and seeking glory by the, by the title of mom or dad. Seeking glory by the number of friends we have on Facebook or the number of times we get a like or a retweet on Twitter. So many of us have given our lives to the pursuit of glory in the comforts that this life offers So many of us have given ourselves to the pursuit of glory and the little bit of power we think we can exercise when we attain a position over others. Brothers and sisters, please hear me. That glory pales in comparison to the glorious identity, mission, and kingdom of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Quit feeding on the, on, the, on the snacks offered by this world and come feed at the fountain of life that you might be satisfied. How? How do we do that then? How, how do we get there? How do we attain this? How do we receive it? How do we get into it? How do we experience His glory? 
we follow the one command given in this passage. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. Wrapped up in this word is urgency. Don't just hear it. Don't just let the sound bounce off of your eardrums. Listen, take it in, comprehend, pay attention. And recently, my wife and I, we were watching uh, Blue Bloods. And, and you know, I don't know if you watch that show. It, it's, it's, we appreciate it. But, but uh, uh, Tom Selleck is this, like, real strong alpha male leader type. And, and, and there's this point where he's engaging with, with, with one of the characters that's, that's over the police with him. And he says, you're, you're listening to me, but you're not hearing. Fix that. Hear God now saying, you're hearing but not listening. Fix that. If you see in your life a pursuit of some lesser glory, listen to Jesus. This is urgent. There's no time to lose. Wrapped up in this word is an endorsement. God the Father is endorsing His Son, and so we trust Him. We don't step into this blindly believing without evidence or without faith. We believe Him because His glory is evident. Maybe today you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior. Today is the day you need to listen. There is only one glorious Savior, and His name is Jesus Christ. Quit trusting in your religious effort Quit trusting in the sham of showing up on Sunday and going to a Bible study on Wednesday and thinking that that makes you worth His glory. Do not bring Christ down like that and do not raise yourself up like that. Please listen. Trust Him and Him alone. Repent of your sin and trust in Him. That is the way you experience His glory. Wrapped up in this word is authority. Obey him. So when he says, go, make disciples. Go, serve as you have been served and pick up your cross and follow me. He doesn't say that thinking it's just a noise that's going to bounce off our ears and go somewhere else. He expects us to obey it. Obey it at home with our, our kids. Rather than trying to be their friend, we seek to make them disciples. Parents, the best thing you could do for your children is show them Jesus. You be the avenue to salvation. Make disciples. That is our primary command as believers, and I think our primary call as parents. Serve one another. That among the brothers, we serve one another the same way God has served us. Jesus exemplified that by kneeling, taking off the towel around his waist and, waist and washing the feet of his followers. And in the world, we serve at the point of need so that it enables us to make Jesus' glory evident, just like the feeding of the 5,000. And finally, rather than simply suffering in the way that the world suffers, we suffer purposely, intentionally, willingly so that Jesus can be known by the world we walk in and live in. Whatever it costs, whatever comes. Christian, it is in the going, the serving, 
and the suffering for Jesus' fame. That's the listening to Jesus. That we will most fully experience Jesus' glory and therein find our hunger for glory satisfied. Drink at the fountain of life. Eat from, from the buffet that's been set before you, the buffet of his glory. We can sit back and pretend we're satisfied. We can act like we've got enough of Jesus. Or we can start listening to him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are glorious. And you have made your glory known by your Son. And oh, are we grateful. May we walk as a people who are grateful. As a people who have found their satisfaction in you. Listening to you, Jesus. I pray these things in your name. By your authority. Spirit, I plead with you that you would move on us and encourage, encourage those who are listening to continue listening and encourage those who have been ignoring to start listening. I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.